0: This is a question uh, on, from Anonymous, from the Physical Retreat. I have taken up Buddhist practice and teachings for about four to five, uh, three to four years. How do I know I am inevitable or fated to be a Buddhist layman? What are the reasons for people midway turning from following Buddhist teachings? How to encourage my spouse from practicing Buddhist teachings? Do I leave it to faith and his connection to Buddhism?
1: So with relation to this practice and meditation, how is it that in the end we know whether we will be a Buddhist lay man or lay woman? This is a knowledge that will come up within ourselves. So when we start to practice, start to meditate, really all people are the same, that we abandon all unskillful, evil things, give rise to skillfulness and make the mind pure. And when the heart has reached a state of peace, then this faith will start to arise as well. So like when we are generous and do acts of merit, Um, or when we listen to the Dhamma, then there's an inner contentment, a joy, a happiness that arises in the heart. And from that, there's this wish to want to do it constantly and to not want to miss out on any of those opportunities. Because when we do these deeds, then it's like the heart gains life. There's a vitality that appears within the mind through that goodness and if we don't do those acts of goodness then the heart feels withered and dry so when we do merit then there's a joy that appears within the heart and then we come to meditate and we feel like on the days that we don't sit in meditation or the mind doesn't come into samadhi then those days are frantic it's like we haven't eaten food that the heart hasn't been nourished. So the people who do these good deeds uh, constantly, then they see the benefit of them and that develops uh, steadily. So there's these acts of generosity that we do. And then as we carry on being generous, then a question can appear, which is, if I gained even more money than what I have now, what would I do with that? And there's just a desire to create merit through that. And so this develops in stages, the mind carries on developing. So we feel like we don't want anything in this world anymore, that all we desire is more time to practice. And so the mind changes here. Perhaps then we can start taking up the eight precepts on the one prā, on the lunar observance day, and maybe take the eight precepts up the day before and the day after that as well, so for three days per week. And this develops by itself, this knowledge uh, grows uh, within ourselves (coughs) until wisdom comes up and we gain an understanding and there's no more doubts there. So it's like, When we eat, then we know when we feel full. We don't need to ask other people about that. We don't need to ask others when it is that we need to stop eating. That we just stop when we feel full. So as we carry on uh, practicing, then there's a fullness that grows within us. And this uh, develops until we become really are these Buddhist lay men and lay women and carry on, this fullness carries on growing into this level of meditation and there can be a desire to ordain and if it's a male, to ordain um, as a monk in the bhikkhu sangha <clears throat> if it's a female, maybe ordain <clears throat> as a merchi or a nun and if one doesn't ordain, can stay as a lay person who keeps the eight precepts, and is genuinely sincere in meditating and practicing. So for the people who have wisdom then it goes like this, it follows this trajectory. But for those who don't have wisdom, um, then they will go downwards. So their faith will reduce and move away from the teachings of the Buddha. And so that's, and then that karma can cut this off as well. So they don't have mindfulness, they don't have wisdom, and they're not close to wise people, those who know the dharma for themselves. So in terms of trying to kind of pull those close to one, Uh, to practice the Dhamma. This is something that we need to do bit by bit. And we need to find the time and the opportunity for this. And so we shouldn't just let them go and allow them to follow the course of their karma, But we should try to motivate them and try to kind of pull them in using various methods. So we may put on some Dhamma talks or we may talk a bit about the Dhamma, and do this bit by bit, slowly pull them in. But not do it in a way that they'll reject that. So there are many uh, couples for whom the wife likes to go to uh, the monastery, but the husband isn't interested. Then the wife asks the husband to, to take her to the monastery, to send her there. And then as he does this then eventually one day he gains a genuine interest in kind of going to the monastery and then can really set his heart on it, on practicing, on meditation, on really taking it for real and can develop very quickly and there are many people for whom this is the case. Or it can be the other way around where the husband goes to the temple but the wife isn't interested but then he Uh, puts on, plays some Dhamma talks and eventually she gets interested. And then after a while, it's possible that their level of sila is equal and their good qualities uh, become equal as well. And this gives great happiness to the whole family.
0: This is an anonymous question from here. Dear Ajahn Anand, In my meditation practice, one of the strongest hindrances is craving. Craving for more money. I tried to use death contemplation and contentment practice, but these are not effective. Ajahn, can you guide me on this monkey money mind? Sadhu.
1: So this is natural for the mind that is still seeking things out. So there's this external search, trying to find, gain and praise, status and pleasure. And these are within the worldly dhammas or the worldly winds. So even though there is this seeking out through craving, but the Buddha didn't forbid that. As long as we go about that um, within the bounds of sila, of virtue. So when we uh, do our work, we do that in a way that doesn't harm ourselves or others. And even though we may get a lot of uh, wealth and we have success in our occupations, the Buddha taught for us to know how to share our wealth. So if we get uh, a lot, then we can help out others, we can create merits and make offerings, we can help those who are going through difficulties, we can help to build roads, for example, giving convenience to others, help to uh, with like water supply, things that give benefits to society and help those who are Going through hard times. So there is this generosity as well, and our working as well, and we do those together. And it depends upon the baromi of individuals. That some people they get a lot of wealth, but they don't have intelligence around that, and so they don't share it. And then when they die, they just toss away all of that wealth here in this world. But if the seeking out is something which is disturbing to our minds, if it's excessive, or if there's just unending thinking about this, then we should see, try to see some of the drawbacks um, in that. Like how, if we just carry on seeking this out, and uh, we don't stop, then we can consider how, or we do actually get this wealth, that's what we gain. But what we lose is our time. And our time is disappearing um, with every moment. So something which is constantly reducing the time that we have left in this world. It's going with every day. And we may think that as time passes, we're gaining more and more. But we should see how what we're losing is the time we have left. And this gets less with each day. So for those who don't have wisdom, then they'll just carry on seeking out external things and do this in a, this deluded way until the day that they die. But for those who do have wisdom, then they'll think about this differently and they'll consider and see how life is not sure. And if I just seek out wealth like this, then when I die, I'm going to have to leave all of this behind. So there's an example of this during the time of the Buddha, that there was one layman who was a merchant. And he would go to one city and sell goods there and then buy other goods and then travel on to the next city and sell things and carry on going like this and he was the uh, owner of a caravan of wagons so he would always be thinking about how much should i sell this for and what should i buy next and his mind was always occupied and scattered with these thoughts of gaining money. But he also went to Jetavana Monastery. And the Buddha, through his knowledge, uh, could see that this layman's life was not sure and in no long time he would die. So he told Venerable Ananda that this layman, he's got just a short time left to live. Venerable Ananda, he heard this, and then he went to caution this layman. And he said that you shouldn't just be thinking about money because life is something that isn't sure. And this layman, he was wise, and he knew that these words of Venerable Ananda that he got from the Buddha, they, this wasn't just common speech, something that he would say normally. And so he was, he gained heedfulness through that and he thought how life isn't sure and that I'll need to die. And through this contemplation of death, he was able to cut off the strong greed, hatred and delusion. His mind gathered together into peace and he uh, attained to the level of sotapanna, of stream entry. But on that very night, he passed away. But he passed away with a mind that was in a good state, that had good qualities to it. And if it wasn't for the Lord Buddha and Venerable Ananda, then this layman would have died in vain. Just seeking out external things, but never seeking internally.
0: This is an anonymous question from here. Dear Longpo, there are two questions. The first question Does one carry the karma of ancestors or the karma of immediate siblings? Question two What are the ways to help lessen their karma, if possible, besides dedicating merits?
1: So, about Kama, or intentional action, that this kama is something that belongs to us. And those who do it, they receive the results of that. So if other people make kama, then um, that doesn't. like. Uh, other people aren't um, uh, kind of combined with that. So it's like if someone breaks the law and but the other people they don't receive the punishment um, for that. And so that karma belongs to the individual that does that action. But for those who are close to them, their family for example, then they may feel sad. You know, that that person has done that deed and received that result. So in that case, they need to train so that their minds can reach equanimity. With regards to reducing other people's karma, what we need to do is to um, invite them or to suggest uh, for them to train their minds, to meditate, to give rise to goodness through generosity and virtue and meditation so that they live their lives in a way that is correct so they don't do any bad karma, and they do good karma instead and so this enters into the teaching that the buddha gave uh, on magga puja which is the abandoning of all unwholesome or evil deeds giving rise to skillfulness and making the mind pure And so we should kind of lead the way, and set ourselves as a good example, so that the people around us can see that. And if these uh, people we want to help, they have passed away already, then we can dedicate the uh, merits of the good deeds that we've done for them. And we also recollect their good qualities um, as well.
0: This is a question from Liz Jiani Herman from Indonesia, from the online retreat. I have attained fourth jhana in Anapanasati and White Kasina. I want to try practicing vipassana, but I don't really know the steps. Before, I had already tried vipassana guided meditation by my teacher, starting from Kasina third jhana, and I saw anatta and the separation of body and mind. But my mind is upeka. Then, suddenly, my mind becomes clear from any wandering thoughts, and I became deeply happier. Happier than any jhana. Then I had insight that in my past life, I had been a monk when Buddha Gautama was still alive, but I did not attain anything. Then Buddha Parinibbana, and I had a really deep sorrow. So from that time, I always tried to do the Eightfold Path. My teacher told me that I have achieved Sotapanna, but I am not sure. I want to end this suffering as soon as possible. Please teach and guide me, Ajahn.
1: So from your question, this shows that uh, your samadhi is very good. It's very collected and firm. So about knowing whether it is that you have achieved sotapanna or not, and someone else uh, has said that you have, Well, that's probably based upon Uh, or they're saying that based upon this deep peace that you've felt. And then, with regards to contemplating, gaining an understanding, uh, the mind being very happy, and coming from its emptiness, and that's something that's also very good. So, from here you should contemplate the body, contemplate how the body is a heap of earth, water, fire and air and see these things break apart into their respective elements and then into emptiness. Or you can contemplate the Vedana, the feelings that arise and see them as just Vedana. So like the hunger or the pains in the body or the Vedana that appears within the heart. So the uh, pleasurable or painful or neutral feelings and know them as just Vedana. And so this is cultivating the satipatthanas, the foundations of mindfulness. And if the mind is peaceful already, and it has uh, that energy of peace is full, then it's no long time after starting to contemplate that one will see uh, the Dhamma for sure. So may you take this peaceful mind to contemplate the body.
0: This is, an, this is an anonymous question from here. Dear Longbo, may I seek your advice and guidance on contemplation on death? Number one, what is the purpose of contemplating death? Number two, how should we contemplate death? Number three, how would this contemplation of death benefit lay life at work? Thank you.
1: So the point of contemplating death is to bring the mind to peace. So this is one means of doing that, having this morana-nusati. So this recollection of death as the object of our minds. So we have probably heard about uh, cultivating the recollection of the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. Uh, There's jaga-nusati, the recollection of uh, Uh, giving uh, and the recollection of devas. And then there's the recollection of death as well. And these are all for bringing the mind to peace. So this is one kamatana, one meditation object out of 40. And the meaning of them is for peace of mind. So when the mind has been brought to peace uh, through this Uh, recollection of death and the benefit of that is that we gain this perception of change and constancy, of stress and not self. So this is a memory or a perception that we gain of anicca, dukkha, anatta and it's very close to wisdom. But it comes up as this perception first and we contemplate like this and it feels like it's very close to wisdom. And this perception is able to cut off greed, hatred and delusion. So even though one may be a lay person who goes to work or maybe a monk, all people are able to develop this recollection. So for example, if anger appears and we can ask ourselves, "Well, why be angry? Because life isn't sure. But death is sure, death is the culmination of my life, my life must end in death. So we think that we should do the best that we can with our time because we need to die. So we should use this opportunity to abandon all bad or evil things, to give rise to skillfulness and to make the mind pure. And this is something that lay people are able to do. So this is a means to bring the mind to peace. But we should also be cautious while doing it, uh, in case the mind may become gloomy or sad or depressed through this recollection. And if that happens, that's not correct. What we want to give uh, rise to is a feeling of sobriety of this kind of chastened uh, dispassion arising. How life isn't sure. And so what I should do is give rise to goodness. And then what I should do is try to put down or greed, hatred and delusion. And this is something that the awakened teachers, Lumpur taught. That we should contemplate uh, death and it's able to cut off uh, these uh, uh, defilements that have arisen. So how do we do that then? Well, one way is when we wake up in the morning and we can tell ourselves that my life is just going to last for this one morning. When it gets to late morning, then I will die. And then when we reach the latter period of the morning, we tell ourselves, well, by midday, I'm going to die. Then when we get to midday, We tell ourselves that life isn't sure, Um, I'll die at 1 p.m. And then after that we kind of carry on going until the evening and into the night. And then when it's time to sleep we tell ourselves, well, perhaps I will die while I'm asleep, that this may be the last night of my life. And then we wake up again and we tell ourselves that in no long time, and not many hours, I will need to die. So a comparison that one could give, it's like four mountains that are coming towards us. These great mountains that are crushing all beings in their path. And the people fleeing from these mountains, um, they run and they tell us of this news. So they're always coming closer towards us. and we're not able to escape from them or nowadays we could use the simile of a nuclear war and we just don't know when someone's going to press that button or we could view it as being like a slaughterhouse and that we are like a cow that is being led to this slaughterhouse And with each step that we take, we're getting closer to our death. Or like a prisoner who is on death row and they know that they're always going more steadily to their death. Or we contemplate people who get into accidents and they don't know they're going to die, but they do die. Or an earthquake that happens and tens of thousands of people can pass away. through that shaking of the earth. So life isn't sure, and we should recollect this. And how many people, they die without thinking that they were going to die. And if we recollect like this, it can bring our mind to peace, and maybe we can gain an understanding and a clarity um, of the Dhamma. So there's an experience that I had, that I'd like to share. And that I was once contemplating someone who had died. That there, this was a police officer and their corpse was in front of me. And this police officer had gone off to exercise um, in the morning and died from the shrapnel of a bomb that had exploded. So, he didn't think um, that he was going to die, he didn't expect that. So upon looking at this body, there wasn't, it didn't have a uniform on. And I was contemplating in this way, and my mind kind of reached um, this level of uh, chastened dispassion, seeing how there was still food in this man's stomach that hadn't been digested. There was still food there, didn't think that he was going to die but he did end up by dying. And so we don't know when we're going to die or where we're going to die, whether it's on the land or in the water or on the air. We don't know how we're going to die, what uh, symptoms or what illness will bring that about. but. What we do know is that all beings need to die. So when I was contemplating like this, then my mind came into stillness and peace. And that's the meaning of this contemplation, is bringing the mind to stillness and peace. But then what happened next was the mind started to proliferate, and a sense of self started to arise. But there was also a knowing that this isn't real, it's not actually there. That this was uh, just a dead body but it wasn't kind of anything or anyone. So this wisdom arose, emptiness arose. And I saw all the people uh, walking about and how they were all walking towards old age sickness and death. It's like everyone around me was just a biological machine. And so this nature of the Dhamma appeared. So even though one is a lay person, one can still contemplate this and see this, and it can give one a very firm belief in the Buddha Sasana, give one very firm faith.